0: You're listening to T.I.P.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. So on today's show, we have a really important topic and thoughtful guest with Sam Callahan. Sam walks us through what central bank digital currencies are, how central banks are likely to implement them, why he thinks they are a threat to individual rights and freedoms, why Bitcoin offers an important alternative and counterbalance among many other important ideas and concepts. If you feel like online censorship is becoming a really big deal, just think what that might mean if it comes to your money. So without further delay, here's my chat with Sam Callahan.
0: You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston
2: Pish.
1: Hey, everyone. Like I said at the introduction, I'm here with Sam Callahan. And Sam, boy, it's nice to have you back on the show. You always have such amazing things to share, and you're always out there writing and doing research. So I'm excited to see what you got for us. But welcome back to the show. Thanks, Preston. Happy to be here, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So I want to start off, you had a recent post that was a pretty big thread on the WEF Front page of their website. And for people that aren't familiar, the WEF is the World Economic Forum. On their homepage, they were talking about the Ethereum merge front and center and really kind of talking it up. And you had this, I don't know how many tweets long, laying out all this research and analysis and like the history of the WEF and their involvement in talking about digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the whole mix. Walk us through your thoughts and what what it is you were trying to lay out.
0: Yeah. Well, the reason I wrote the thread was because obviously it was an interesting timing when the merge happened. And then immediately they already had an article ready to go on the World Economic Forum and they plastered it on the front page. And Bitcoiners were appropriately kind of annoyed by that and kind of called it out as a weird thing because World Economic Forum is kind of the opposite of what Bitcoin represents and they're basically shilling ETH on their front page. But some Ethereum proponents kind of talked and said, you know, you guys are cherry picking, they also have written pieces about Bitcoin. And I just thought that was hilarious because I knew they had written pieces about Bitcoin over the last several years, but they just haven't been positive like this one about proof of stake in Ethereum. And so what I did was I went back to, you know way back to all the times that they've ever written about anything about digital assets and basically collected them, read them, and basically laid it out to show that there's been a concerted effort from the World Economic Forum to discredit proof of work, to attack bitcoin and then promote alternative cryptocurrencies that are easier to co-opt and easier to control. And so really what this comes down to is the merge, you know, they changed from proof of work to proof of stake. And when they do that, it leads to increased risks of cartel formations of ability to pool capital together and influence the rules of the protocol, of the, you know, the consensus mechanism. And so it leads to centralization and increased censorship risks compared to proof of work. And so you know, underlying all of this is the World Economic Forum can't really control Bitcoin. You know, nobody can control Bitcoin. That's kind of the whole point. It's decentralized. And the poorest vagabond and the richest tycoon have equal rights in the Bitcoin protocol. But in proof of stake, money is power. And World Economic Forum has a ton of resources and power and fiat. And they could just buy a bunch of Ethereum now, and they would have a ton of stake. And they would be able to theoretically alter the rules of the protocol if they desired, if they built a cartel with a bunch of other stakers. you know That risk exists now. It's not to say that it's happening right now, but it exists. So when I look through all this past publication from the World Economic Forum, it's hilarious honestly. So back in 2017, their first Bitcoin article, it's titled in 2020 Bitcoin will consume more power than the world does today. And obviously it's still up there, which is funny because they've been known to delete articles, but if you just like my lights are on right now, it's 2022, so it's obviously not right and Bitcoin has been shown to only use a fraction of the world's you know, less than one percent of the world's energy usage is right now and it's 2020. So it's obviously false. And so that gives you a sense of the expertise level of these people when it comes to Bitcoin, and yet they're writing about it. And so you go on to the next couple of articles they've written in about 2018. Similarly, they've spread misinformation about Bitcoin's energy use. One is from the Economist, which is a central banker who has this very flawed model for measuring Bitcoin's carbon footprint that gets cited by all these central bankers, but it's wrong. You know, for instance, Ben, Ben Goggin or something over at BitFarms, he wrote this article that kind of showed that when China banned Bitcoin and hash rate was cut in half, that model actually went up. And so that's how wrong it is, right? So like literally half of Bitcoin's hash rate went offline when China banned it and that model went up. And so he's the one who wrote this other article or kind of had a bunch of quotes in it and he criticized Bitcoin's energy use Say it's going to eat the world's energy, just like the last article, and then speaks about the coal problem of, cause at the time China had a lot of the hash rate. So China bans it and now that problem doesn't exist. So that's still up there, but that does not even relevant to today, right? And then they kind of go on a break and they don't do anything because Bitcoin's price goes down. So they probably thought it was dead like everyone else during 2018, 2019, but then they come back with a vengeance in 2020 with their pro proof of stake. Propaganda and anti proof of work. And this is when they start shielding Ethereum and their move, proof of stake and the merge. And they start talking about how it reduces energy consumption by 99.5%, which is flawed thinking.
1: And then Expl- they kind of explain talk about why. How so explain why you think that's flawed thinking, just to kind of interrupt you there on that.
0: Yeah. Well, the electricity, it doesn't disappear. And those miners are still mining. And actually, a lot of them moved over to Ethereum Classic. And so it's not reducing you know, the energy consumption of the world by moving to proof of stake and the merge, it's actually just moved over to an old Ethereum blockchain. So it's really just Ethereum going to Ethereum. It's still happening. And so it's not like this just like completely turned off and these miners walked away. So it's just kind of flawed thinking to think that, you know, this is reducing the world's energy consumption. I even had like my governor of my state, he tweeted out like, congratulations Vitalik on the move to proof of work and reducing energy the world's energy consumption by point, you know, zero two percent or something by moving to proof. and I was like, "That's so flawed." It's still happening. There, you can literally see it. They just moved over to a different blockchain. So that's kind of what I mean. It's just kind of flawed thinking. But the most interesting piece of the World Economic Forum on Bitcoin that I found was called "Unifying Cryptocurrency ESG Efforts to Boost Cryptocurrency Adoption," and it's there that they basically lay out their plans to band together their resources at the World Economic Forum and use the resources to attack proof of work, both economically, politically, socially. And they lay out their plans right there, right in the open. So they create this accelerator called the Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator. It's called CISA. And some of the members of this are Andreessen Horowitz, which is the richest VC, crypto VC fund out there. To give you a sense of what they think about Bitcoin in their State of Crypto Report they put out for 2022, Bitcoin is the largest cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is not mentioned in in the single a single time in the report. It's literally not in the report, and it's the number one cryptocurrency by basically every every measure. So that's that's what Andres Horowitz thinks about Bitcoin, and they invest in all of these other cryptocurrencies. So they're incentivized for Bitcoin to lose market share. So essentially, they're one of the members you have cello you have chain analysis which is a crypto surveillance company you have coindesk who also benefits from the other cryptocurrencies because think about all the stories that they get from all the hacks and all the scams like they literally incentivize to support these other cryptocurrencies because if. Bitcoin's pretty stable. Like I don't know, if they'd get a lot of stories written
1: out. Uh, I remember notes. where B- uh, Barry sat back on the 2017, uh, you know, fork wars on Bitcoin. Who's mm-hmm. you know one of the main uh, people at CoinDesk. So kind of interesting to see him continue to battle it.
0: Yeah. So that's a digital currency group. I think owns yeah. coins. Yeah, for sure. And then you got Goldman Sachs. There's another one who also has not been that flattering to Bitcoin over the years. And then you have Ripple and Stellar, which are pretty much some of, in my opinion, some of the biggest scams in the space. So they're all working together in this accelerator and pooling their capital and resources together. And they're all incentivized in their own ways for proof of work to fail. And what they're going to do is they're going to use ESG as a shield to justify their efforts. And they even talk about how they're going to do it and they talk about projects they're going to support and alternative currencies they're going to support but then they talk about like leadership and they say we're going to create impact opportunities to seize and secure commitments to our leading efforts and that just really rubbed me the wrong way because nobody elected these guys like i didn't make them my leader you know and they say that they're going to seize and secure commitments based on their leading efforts like they know it's best for the world and they'll use forceful tactics to do it. That's basically what they lay out there. And what they're going to do is they're going to crush Bitcoin. And the reason is not ESG. That's the key point here. The reason is because they would have no control or power in this monetary system. And so when you go through this, you just see a concerted effort to discredit Bitcoin and proof of work. And then it shifts over to supporting proof of stake in Ethereum, because I believe that they can better co-opt that system and when they say that, they won't say that out loud, but they'll say that it's because of the energy usage, right? And so that was where that came from. And I just think it's interesting. I always go through these things because they lay it out right on their website and you can just track it if you just go back far enough and, and find these
1: articles. It's all about control. The whole thing is about control. And it, it, I guess the ultimate irony for me is, especially on Twitter, you see people that just kind of stand behind these really artificial narratives of maxi or don't you like the environment? And these people that are just chirping these narratives on their behalf as the few puppeteers are kind of sitting at the top orchestrating everything in order to keep pulling the strings. So I'm going to go into a much deeper dive on proof of stake and how it functions and how it does blocks with Jason Lowry next week, where he's going to, <laughs> he's coming out swinging. And I think he's it's going true. to have uh, some very in depth arguments around how it functions, why it provides all the control into the hands of a few, and how it's consolidating and centralizing forces only trend towards further centralization in the future. And it's going to be pretty comprehensive. So I guess I'll cover that with him more on the technical side but I really want to have these articles that you're talking about. I guess I, I can share the, the thread that you're talking about here because it lays out each one of these articles. It does a great job kind of providing the resources that you're talking about, and I'll have that in the show notes for people if they want to check it out and give it in more detail. Let's go to central bank digital currencies because mm-hmm. when, when we look at this merge, we look at the centralizing authority that now exists to control the direction of ETH, which is the biggest stablecoin token provider out there by a lot, at least today, to think that through the validation process, transactions can be included or not included based off of some of these validators and people that are running these validators, the few people that are running these validators, it becomes very concerning when you look at the central bank digital currencies. Walk us through your framework of how you think about these things in general, where you see it going in a five-year timetable, how are governments going to issue their central bank digital currencies? Because I suspect you are of the opinion that they are going to do this. What it means from a privacy standpoint, just take us through all of it, Sam.
0: Yeah. Look, like I, I started studying central bank digital currencies years ago. I've tried to read a lot of what the central banks have put out in terms of their research, from the Bank of Canada to Bank of England, Bank of International Settlements, IMF, National Bureau of Economic Research, Fed. like I've just kind of read a lot of, about it. And initially, the reason I did that was because I saw it as the number one threat to freedom out there. I see it as a potential tool of surveillance. And a tool that could infringe on privacy, like you said, as well as lead to violations of human rights. And so I started to look into it very, very deeply. The more I looked into it, the less and less concerned I became about them, because I think there's a ton of risks that lay at the feet of those who issue it, AKA the central banks. So a lot of people focus on the privacy and for good reason. It could potentially create like an Orwellian kind of future where they would be able to track all of our financial transactions. They'd be able to see everything that we do, who we transact with, and they would use that metadata to kind of paint a picture of who we are as a person. And so already central, 80% of central banks use big data. And they use that for their economic research and to inform policy decisions. And so they're already using data and they just want more of it. So what, what data they don't have is if I just gave you a $20 bill, Preston, and then you know, they don't have that data. And so they want to have everything. And what that would do, it would, it would allow them to basically do whatever they want in terms of changing monetary policy to more social policy or to push social agenda if they wanted to. And I don't know if you saw this thread. It was like Darren Feinstein. He posted this thread. And he, he laid it out so perfectly. He was just like, purchase denied. Like You've, you've consumed your quota of meat for the month, You know, come back in 72 hours. Or you didn't vote, purchase denied. You have to go back and do your voting polls. Or purchase denied, you made a, you know offensive social media post. And so that's the kind of thing that could be enabled with a central bank digital currency. And not only that, but it could really remove the need for cash in society. And cash is one of the only ways that we transact with any kind of anonymity today. And so they were trying to remove cash and people will say that they aren't and they'll say they aren't. So in all their papers, they say, hey, this will complement cash. But when you keep reading all their papers, they basically assume that it'll be a cashless society. They always like include one line that says, don't worry, this will complement cash. And then the entire rest of the tone of the paper assumes that there won't be cash. And even their models that they run, they assume there won't be cash in the models. You know, and when they say, "Oh, we'll keep cash," well, going cashless isn't just happen; it's a policy decision. And so they're assuming that in some time in the future there will be a policy decision that will move remove cash completely. And if that's the case, then it basically entraps everybody into the system, and nobody will be able to get out except there's Bitcoin, but you know, if Bitcoin didn't exist, they wouldn't be able to get out of the system. And so they can do all kinds of things. They can do negative interest rates if they want. They could do targeted stimulus checks. They could do expired uh, stimulus checks. So to stimulate spending, they say, hey, you got to use this in
1: 30 days or you're not getting it. We We literally just saw that this week with China, right? Yeah no, exactly. Yeah. Where they, where supposedly it was cash, you know, their digital CBDC yuan and it had a duration or a time limit that you had to spend it by. Exactly. Like China
0: has been doing this since 2014. So they're a little ahead of the curve. We also saw an example of, you know, how this could go because China has a social credits system and there was kind of banking protests happening throughout China. And, when there was protests about it, they also have these health codes associated with the COVID lockdowns. So you know, if you're healthy, you're green. And if you're not, you're red. And, and what they did for the protesters, you can't access trains. You can't access public transportation if you have COVID, if you have like a red health code or whatever. And for these people trying to just protest the banks and get on the trains to join the protests, suddenly their health code turned red. And so they couldn't access the transportation. And so that's the kind of power that these central bank digital currencies would grant these, uh, these governments as well as central banks. And the thing is, they, they actually think that this is better. They think that they want the data because they're a public institution. And so they think people are worried about private companies and fintech companies having all the data because they can use it for profitable purposes, uh, You know, selling advertisements and stuff like that. But they assume that they're like benevolent and everyone trusts them because they're a public institution and they don't have, you know, there's no reason for them to use the data for profits. So we should have all the data, but we know that governments abuse data and have been spying on its citizens for the last, you know, 10 years uh, since the Patriot Act. I mean, we know this because of Edward Snowden and what he exposed. And so to think that this won't u- be used nefariously against the people, I think is very naive. And so that's kind of like the privacy component of this. But what I want to focus on is I think that this will actually be the nail in the coffin for central bank credibility. And I think it's because they'll completely botch this if they try to go ahead with a central bank digital currency. And they have no idea what will happen to the global financial system want to introduce a brand new asset with these characteristics and what it will do to the banking industry, what it will do to the capital flows. And we can get into that right now, but I don't know if I want to- No,
1: I do want to go that direction. I think that that that's uh, the logical next step. Keep going.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is, they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate, to startups, to gold and silver. There are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show.
0: Yeah, well the first the major major problem is it would basically disintermediate the commercial banking system. And so what a CBDC is and the way like there's just two examples, you can have a token-based CBDC, which would be just like a you know, a stable coin, private stable coin, but it would be issued by the C- central bank and it would have anonymity built into it. And there's like an account based CBDC, which mimics a banking, like a commercial banking deposits. Now, central banks have all considered both and they just shoot out the token one because they don't want anonymity. <laughs> they They want to track everything. So there's only one central bank I know of still considering that, the Bank of Canada, but every single one has decided, no, we're going to do the account based one. And so, The account-based one is really unique because basically it would have the liquidity profile of of a digital cash, but it would also offer interest like a bond. And so that asset has never existed before. So it'd be a brand new asset. And so what they're worried about is that people would remove deposits out of commercial banks and put it into the CBDC accounts because it's technically safer because it's issued by central bank. So it's like risk-free You don't have the counterparty risk of like a commercial bank. It's the central bank, you know, so you can trust it. So they're worried that it's going to drain commercial banks of deposits. And the reason this is important is, you know, commercial bank deposits are are liabilities on its balance sheet and they're backed by assets. Typically consists of bonds, loans, other financial assets. If a CBDC is introduced, some households and businesses who hold bank deposits are going to exchange them for CBDCs and that'll be just like if they took out banknotes at an atm and then you reduce the assets and liabilities of the bank and you shrink the bank's balance sheet in that process and when you do that you know you are basically making it so you're they're shrinking the balance sheet they're going to lose those deposits and then it's going to make them more hesitant to lend out because they're not going to have that funding to lend out and do their banking practices and so you have these like dynamics where when you lose the deposits in the commercial banking system, it's going to increase the cost of funding for these banks. It's going to eat into their profit margins, and then they're going to raise interest rates to try to kind of make up for that. That'll result in lower lending in the economy, decrease economic activity, and potential bad situation where the banks are really struggling with their profits because basically the CBDC is sucking out all of their mm. business. Mm. It's basically it's like a suck. Yeah. Um, so that's what they mean by like a commercial bank disintermediation. And so it can really lead to financial instability. And so they're worried about this. All these central banks, they're really worried about this. And their, their ideas for trying to overcome this problem are really poor. Like they basically, they want to have price caps of $3,000 $3, on the CBDC accounts. And that's a problem because you know if you're a firm or an individual, you know, every time you're going to vary in size and needs in terms of what you want to transact with so like in terms of the amount so it could undermine the actual usefulness of the CBDC for industry and commerce if there's like this fixed cap on whether what you can hold in the account so it makes no sense and then there are other ideas to penalize the people who hold more than the 3000 cap limit with negative interest rates and that's just like a slashing mechanism so it's, it's very like a proof of stake where you're basically slashing people who aren't following the rules of the system and taking their money for them And then their last thing, this is the funniest one, was when they drain the money out of the commercial banking system, one of their solutions is to basically offset it with a liquidity providing operation via the central bank and expand their balance sheet. So they're going to introduce this asset for whatever reason that disintermediates the commercial banking system. And then their plan is to basically plug it by printing more money and bailing out the banks that they just basically took their business. And so it makes absolutely zero sense to me why they would take these risks to issue the central bank digital currency. And so during a this even gets worse during a bank run. So if there's like any kind of uncertainty or worry about the commercial banks, now that you have this option where you could run to a central bank digital currency account, it can lead to bank runs, like an increased risk of bank runs because you have this new risk-free asset backed by the central bank. That doesn't have the counterparty risk commercial banks. And so this has actually happened throughout history. Back in the 1930s, there was the French Great Depression. There were savers who held their savings at banks, but they weren't backed by the government. But there were these gover- government backed savings institutions that were regulated similar to what a CBDC would be. And what happened was there was a substantial bank run. And it was worse because there was this disparity between The one was regulated, one was backed by a safe issuer, and the other was a commercial bank. And what happened was it was a terrible time where there's a complete bank run in France because there's these two kind of deposits with different safety kind of assurances. And so it could lead to bank runs, it could lead to bank disintermediation. And the the central banks are just continually to go along with these plans, even though these risks are extremely real. And it's very uncertain what would even happen if they, if they went along with it. So that's only one thing, but I'll let you kind of...
1: <laughs> well, so, so you're bringing up these risks. I agree with you. I think they do understand that these risks exist if they implement one of these things. And so as I'm thinking through that, I'm, I'm also kind of thinking, are they going to be completely inept in their decision-making because they're just there's so much analysis by paralysis happening at their level where they just can't even make a decision because they understand all these risks. And in the meantime, does that just allow the rest of the system to comp- continue to implode in real time as they're continuing to chew over all of this analysis by paralysis?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to consider, and you're right. I mean, it seems like a massive waste of resources and time that they're spending on researching these things. Yeah. that seems to be looking for a problem. You know, it's a solution looking for a problem. They actually read a lot like ICO white papers from 2017, where they come up with all these problems, and then they think they're smart enough to outdesign them. I get like deja vu reading them. <laughs> the other, the other thing is that the security risks of having all of the data in a centralized place. Oh disastrous all the data yeah so you have these like uh, vulnerabilities that could be exploited of the entire national financial system and so you know you have sensitive data on an unprecedented scale i think they're
1: scared all. to death of that
0: yeah they should
1: be yeah they and,
0: should you know be. <laughs> they're not good central banks are not good there's been a history of hacks all over the place the federal reserve alone detected 50 cyber breaches from uh, 2011 to 2015 and just this last july this kind of went under the radar. But there was a huge Chinese espionage effort that got exposed in July. For the last decade, they've been infiltrating the Federal Reserve. And the uh, Senate Committee on Homeland Security blamed the Federal Reserve for weak data protection. And it was a, they were a victim of a decades-long espionage effort. right? And so the Federal Reserve was unable to detect. They didn't have the policies and procedures in place. And even though they knew there was ties for these people to China, they continue to let them have access to confidential information. And so that happened just in July. And these are the people that we're supposed to give all of the data to. It's absolutely ins- insane to me. And so you're going to have this like potential of significantly increased centralization by storing all this data on a single ledger. And it just becomes a honeypot for cyber criminals to come after. And like, why wouldn't they come after it? You can literally attack the very money of a country. And then just like when Russia invaded Ukraine, Anonymous hacked the Russian central bank in weeks after, like they made it look easy. They released 28 giga- gigabytes of data and 35,000 confidential files. Just like that. I mean, I was not aware of that. That's yeah. Crazy. I mean, like, so, yeah, I know it's crazy. So that's <laughs> the security is just another thing. So you yeah, got bank this intermediation. You got the security. The other thing is, uh, Currency substitution. So like, like, dollarization is a big problem in emerging markets, right? So like, if, if Turkey right now is struggling to implement monetary policy as their lira is inflating at a rapid pace, because everyone's... All their citizens aren't holding liras, they're holding dollars. And so they can't effectively implement their monetary policy. When you have a central bank digital currency that can cross borders very easily... It could basically infringe on the monetary sovereign sovereignty of of any kind of country, any country in the world. And so, if there was a CBDC, like the IMF actually talks about this with Bitcoin and stable private stable coins, they call it cryptoization, where you have parallel money happening in economies, and it could really cause financial instability and problems for the central bank, especially central banks that are that have high inflation and they've been proven to be incompetent, where their citizens want to leave their currency. Uh, makes it really hard for them. But the exact same thing can happen with the central bank digital currency. And it can lead to basically one currency taking over, especially when you have these changes in uh, like an arbitra- arbitrage opportunities between interest rates of these central bank digital currencies because they are going to have interest rates attached to them. And so it leads to interconnectedness, leads to increased spillover effects that could happen when you have more interconnectedness because these CBDCs can be easily transferred. And so again, it leads to increased risk of financial instability because of these currency substitution risks. And then and let me I'll just keep going.
1: No, the yeah, is, list them all. You know, I'm, I'm writing them all down here. Just keep going.
0: <laughs> the other one's legal. Like These central banks don't even have the legal rights to issue these central bank digital currencies. I'm not a lawyer, but I read a, a couple uh, papers written by lawyers and they say like do central bank laws authorize the creation of central bank liabilities and the issuance of currency to the public in digital form? And like, no, they don't. And so you have 107 central banks uh, currently looking into central bank digital currencies. That's 95% of GDP. Only 23% of them maybe have laws that would allow them to issue them. Hmm. And and so, you know, obviously that can change, but that's going to take time. Like you gotta you gotta change the monetary laws and some of it's like uh, you have to it's constitutional and stuff like that. So that's the other thing. And then the other thing's execution. Like how do you Oh amen you, on that one? Yeah. How do you de- how do you assume that there's gonna be demand for these central bank digital currencies? Nobody seems to want them. These central bankers are writing all this research and papers and nobody wants them. Like what kind of I haven't met very many citizens that are really pumped about a central bank digital currency. And not only that you got to build all the infrastructure you know hardware you know how do you do storage you build a wallet what's the wallet look like how do you distribute this like so that it's financially inclusive for older individuals who have a hard time with technology or rural individuals who don't have the access to it and so there's all these kind of questions that come into mind and my my favorite's the ECB because they say we are consulting the public and it's great we have great responses And they did two public consultation periods. The first one was 8,000 responses. I didn't get to look at them because I didn't know about it at the time, but I read their report and they were like, it was a great, great, uh, you know, there were so many of them. There's so much interest in this. It's great. Uh, Privacy is their main concern. And they said, we're going to keep going with it. So then they had another consultation period. And this time I was aware of it happening. And you can actually, there was 18,000 responses in the second one. And I read 14,000 of these individual responses. I translated them. And of course you did,
1: Sam. Of course you
0: did. <laughs> it just, they're funny. They're like, they're what you'd expect. They're not even, they're like, yeah. no,
1: we do not want this. Yeah. This is a
0: terrible idea. We do not want to give you this power. This is going to be a human's rights. Basically, I'm just paraphrasing all of them because yeah. I'd say 98% of that, of those feedback comments were just that. And then if you go to the uh, speeches that like Christine Lagarde and Fabio Panetta, who's uh, the head of the crypto ta- task force for, for the Eurosystem, they still are saying right now that, oh, it's a great, you know, it's such great demand for it. You know, they're basically gaslighting and saying that the amount of comments means that there's good yeah, interest yeah, yeah. in <laughs> its demand, it's, even though the comments themselves are like, no, like we do not oh, want my this. Oh So there's no demand for these things. And so that's where it's the difference with Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin's demand is grassroots because it's an actual good product that people want. Whereas this is just like, it would have to be top down and enforced. They've actually, they've said, how are we going to get the commercial banks to do this, you know, to help us spread this when it's going to disintermediate them and take their business? (laughs) They basically have to, they're trying to incentivize by, by printing money and giving money to the banks to help them push, CBDC adoption. That's like one of their plans. And so all of these things together, you're just like, good luck. Like, good luck trying to get this out. Even if you can get it out, the odds of it actually working out are so slim. And then I think it's going to end in disaster. I think they're going to mess it up. I think it's there's a huge reputational risk on these credit banks whose credibility are completely in the gutter right now. I mean, they're literally never lower. And, and I think it might be the final nail in the coffin and all Bitcoin has to do is function at this point, you know, like it just has to keep doing its thing because it makes sense to me. It's their hubris. They're going to shoot themselves by, by thinking that they can get away with, with the central bank digital currency. And that would be so perfect for these central banks who think they're so smart that they can get away with this. And then it just turns out to be a disaster. And then once everything falls Bitcoin, TikTok, next block, it'll just be working perfectly. And maybe they'll understand why it's a good idea then after they try to go through all the central bank digital currency nonsense. This so that's, why, my, this, that's
1: my central bank. This picture. is why I love talking to you because you know what? You do the work. You do the proof of work. You, you read all of this stuff in nitty-gritty detail to formulate a what i think is an objective opinion i'm sure people who want cbdcs which there's probably five out there in the world you know they've got their own opinions but like you have done the work to understand this when i'm hearing all this the thing that i just keep thinking though is so what is their course of action to bring this about cuz mm-hmm. i think i think there's going to be some that do try it and when I think about that execution risk that you brought up, I think that's, that's a huge one. And it's like, how are they going to go about this? Because they know, they know they don't have the technical chops in-house to do this. So they have to outsource it to some type of company. They have to either go to a coin that already exists and basically nationalize it or take it over. Or maybe they just start running all their own validators and they control at the protocol level and they can reorg uh, transactions any way they want. Or maybe it's a combination of, of multiple of those. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I could see them. I've always said, like, you know, some of these really regulated private stable coins, it might make sense for them to just buy them. And basically, it had, it's happened before. The Fed has bought, I can't remember what, but yeah. It's actually like acquired technology from the private sector before. So I could definitely see that happening. Um, is that most plausible? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's definitely a plausible outcome. The problem is, man, like all of the central banks are doing this, right? And there is a first mover advantage. It's the currency substitution problem that I talked about. Yeah. Especially, this is why the digital, this is why the ECB's is uh, so fast with this. They're faster than anybody. Mm, They've mm. had the most recent last two years and you know why because they had negative interest rates mm-hmm. if somebody else like the dollar a cbdc that could uh, provide a higher rate of interest and could cross borders instantly they would be at risk because they had literally negative interest rates and they they basically say this in some of their models and some of their papers and so they're they're going after it and so once like these governments and central banks set a course of action and get really obsessed with something it's so difficult for them and costly to stop. Like it, it just seems like they've kind of on this road where it's like a prisoner's dilemma where one central bank's going to do it. So then they feel like they can't fall behind. So they have to go after it themselves. And even though it's not a good idea, we're going to keep doing it. And so I think it is going to happen. I just don't think it's a good idea. And isn't it? It's, it's so easy to see why China's going after it because the banks are state owned. So mm-hmm. there's not a risk of disintermediation, no. you know, and they're stringent capital controls in place. So the currency substitution stuff isn't as bad either. And they already don't have any privacy, so they don't really care about that. And so it's like everyone sees China doing it and thinks, oh, we should do it too. But China doesn't really have the same risks because of you know what they are all about. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I, I think I think this is definitely happening. It's funny, I do do all the proof for work. I, I do read all this, all this, but I was talking to uh, Jeff Booth, <laughs> the other day. And he was like, I was like, do you ever think about central bank digital currencies? And he said something like, I haven't thought one iota about central bank. (laughs) (laughs) I was always like, ooh, that's never a good one, Jeff. (laughs) I haven't thought about it at all. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, they're doomed to fail. And I'm thinking about all these things that I just mentioned. And he's like, no, it's because it's it's central Mm planning.
1: And I was like, it's It's censorship. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's also like, they think that the problem is they don't have the right tools. To like mm-hmm, central plan. Mm-hmm. And they need a central bank digital currency where they can more control. Tar- yeah. yeah. Targeted monetary policy, uh, targeted taxes, all these things. They're like, this, this is it. Now things are going to get smoother. Like these business, <laughs> these boom bust cycles are going to be reduced. But they don't realize the actual flaw is central planning itself. And mm-hmm. so they say, even if they get everything right, even if they do everything right, it's still doomed to fail because it's just underlying everything is this idea that central planning works. And so that's first principles. (laughs) First principles. So, like, again, I'm just, I'm not, I used to be worried about central bank digital currencies. Now I think it might be the biggest boon for Bitcoin in the end.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It happened. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions, and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash WSB. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash WSB. Rules and restrictions may apply. dot com slash wsb that's all lowercase go to shopify.com slash wsb now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in that's shopify.com slash wsb all right back to the show
1: it, it may accelerate it because as they try to you know put their fingers on even more controls the complexity itself will eat itself the more that they try to intermingle and control the uncontrollable, you're just setting yourself up for just total failure. Hey, so you, you do, this is what I love about talking to you, uh, you do a lot of research. One of the things that you've recently been studying is just the history of the European Central Bank, the Euro. Walk us through, first of all, why? Why did you go about in this research? And then talk to us about some of the stuff that you uncovered and things that you found interesting.
0: Yeah, I started researching this a few months ago. Honestly, I just I looked at the euro and European situation, and this was kind of before like the energy crisis really got bad, but I saw it as like a really weak link in the, in the global financial system, and I wanted to understand more about the ECB and how it works from my research in the Bank of International Settlements. I knew that. It started with them, uh, the idea of uh, European Monetary Union, started with the International Settlements. And then when I started researching it, I guess I didn't think it would be... It, it was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. It's, it's essentially a political creature. It's not economic. And to understand the Euro is to understand entire European politics of the last 40 years. And so I was like, oh man. So then I started reading all these books and and it was really fascinating because I realized like this thing's kind of doomed to fail. And in fact, all monetary unions in history have always failed. It's just a matter of time because in times of crisis, monetary rules get thrown out the window. And eventually these governments adhere to their own self interest. And that's just what happens every single time. And when the euro was being created, I mean, economists, major economists at the time, were warning about how stupid it was essentially. Milton Friedman you know he basically said it's so silly to have monetary union where you have disparate economies different fiscal you know policies tax cultures policies, everything and so he's like this is not going to work eventually it's going to fall apart but since it was a political reason for doing it and the reason why is it's more like us hegemony was kind of coming up and they thought that this would help compete because there's 340 million People under the euro, three hundred thirty million United States. They thought it would just be grouping together and make them more powerful. They were worried because Germany had just like united after the fall of the Berlin Wall. They were worried that they would have too much power, and so they 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 wanted to band together to kind of make sure that something you know Germany getting a bunch of power again isn't really what they wanted. So they wanted to kind of unite France and Germany under a monetary union. And so they said, like, this is what we're going to do. Like, this is. And the economists said, this isn't a good idea. And they're like, well, we're going to do it anyway. And so politicians kind of thought they knew best. And then the real reason why I looked into the European Monetary Union and the Euro is because I saw a ton of similarities between the European debt crisis of the early 2010s in terms of what's going on right now uh, with Italy and the peripheral countries and the debt problems and what the ECB is trying to do right now, which I think is like riding two horses, one ass, essentially, as they try to fight inflation and try to keep these yields down to prevent some kind of major default from happening. And the difference between back then and now is, back then it was Greece, which was a pretty small country. This time it's Italy, which is the third biggest economy in Europe. And you know the consequences are much more dire if something bad happens right now. And then the other major difference is the inflation. And that that really constrains the central bank, but by studying the European debt crisis of the early two thousand tens, you kind of see what the playbook that they used was, and that they're doing the exact same thing now, just kind of in hyperdrive, and and now with inflation to uh, to complicate things, and so that's kind of why I dug into it, and it was really interesting. And my TLDR is that wow, the ECB is in a really really hard Spot right now. It's kind of putting it mildly.
1: Mildly. Yeah. Well, like going back to the complexity that we were talking about earlier, it applies itself there culturally. You have different dynamics at play within each one of these countries. The whole you know, at the crux of it, Lynn Alden does such a great job talking about the, the implications of net exporters versus net importers and how that's kind of at the the keystone of everything that's playing out in the world right now. And when you look at Europe and you look at how many countries are actually net exporters, especially right now, it's it's like zero. But in a normal functioning economy, Germany is the only net exporter amongst them. I think there's maybe one or two more. I think maybe Denmark's one and, and maybe one other. And so that dynamic is a huge stress point for the currency itself as they're trying to defend its value in, on this global stage and, and how they're trying to defend it versus countries that are just total net consumers and it just puts this this political, you know, headbutting in place. And I think what we're looking at right now with the whole energy thing now taking front stage with, you know, obviously with Russia cutting off the supplies to them and then all their energy policies over the past decade that have led them to uh, not having a stable grid and having independence on that front. I think it's just it's like taking a magnifying glass and then putting another magnifying glass over top of that. And just shining it straight down on the area. It's, it's very concerning. I can only imagine what this uh, winter is going to bring. You know, I obviously don't, and as, as you don't either, want any type of difficulty for anybody around the world. But as I'm looking at the situation, it is very dire. It is not looking good. And, it, and I think it's something that is going to have a ripple effect into the rest of the world as we just go into the next two quarters i i just i can't even imagine what this is going to bring and what it means and, and then you just overlay not to not to go too long here but then you just overlay where we're at with the credit markets and how they're literally have been pegged down to zero just jam packed like a spring down to 0% since the financial crisis right And now all of a sudden everybody stops trusting each other and you got this energy thing playing out, which is going to just keep these inflation prints sky high. And when you're looking at that disparity and that and that negative spread between inflation, which is your reality, and where these yields are at in their in their credit markets, it's a checkmate type of situation. I had this question at the end of the show, but I'm gonna just ask it right now. Are we in the end game? Is this the global end game that everybody's been talking about since the global financial crisis? Because I know where I stand and I don't want to answer cuz I don't want to bias or anything like that. I think you already know what my answer is, but I want to hear what your answer is. I mean, I, th- I was just talking to my roommates about this.
0: It just it just seems like there's one thing after the other that are just kind of combining right now to create this perfect storm. I mean, the Japan news today about the devaluation of the yen you know the fact that all the, the how fast the Fed is raising rates right now, and the pressure that it's putting on the European Central Bank as well as the BOJ and their currencies, it's kind of scary, man. They those are, all these currencies are losing value at such a rapid rate right now. And then you got the debt on top of everything. And that's why like I get so annoyed at like the Fed presser the other day, and not a single question about the debt levels, and they talk about keeping these rates high. And I'm like, good luck. You know, like uh, you got zombie companies in the United States, and then you got all of these other sovereigns around the world with debt levels up to their ears. How are you going to keep rates up at these levels for too long?
1: How is but- nobody asking about the debt spiral? Right? How are they not asking about this? Do they not get an invite if they're that type of person that's going to actually ask a hard question? Or like, what's happening in these pressers? How is it not coming up? How is it these layup questions? I think that they, yeah, they would risk their their jobs.
0: But you know, yeah. at some point, somebody's got to do it. Uh, you know, like somebody's got to sacrifice themselves and ask these questions because uh, it's ridiculous. Honestly, somebody's got to ask the hard questions to these central bankers. But unfortunately, I think you're right. I think once they ask one hard question, they're kind of they're out. And then that's they bring in somebody else who's gonna just ask the right questions. But you know, one thing that I would say in terms of is this the end game right now, I think there is this like underappreciated possibility of coordination. And actually one, central bank coordination as well as government coordination is I think that's what are we're kind of hearing today from US officials and, and Japan officials about you know maybe we'll see some kind of coordination there. I know Ben Bernanke said that they can buy foreign uh, sovereign bonds if they need to. It's in their charter or whatever. And so you could be this situation where the Fed becomes the lender of last resort for the world. <laughs> it just becomes more centralized. You know That could be the next
1: ultimate bubble. And now, so, be- who's, so who's paying for that with their buying power? right if if the, yeah, if, if the us is stepping in to save other countries at this point to defend the global system right like we're incentivized to do that but we're also there there's somebody that has to pay a price there has to be an expense you can't you know the aviator in me comes out you can't have lift without corresponding drag on the airfoil right did you see that? There was like this, like video of like uh, some Clinton symposium,
0: and they were yes. talking about like where are they gonna get the money for these ESG? And then the oh my god, like, we we'll find it. We found seventeen trillion Trillions for COVID. For <laughs> COVID. Trillion, we'll so trillion. That's what, that's what I think about that question, man. I'm like, they just don't even
1: think about. She that. was serious as a heart attack. We're we're talking about one of the guests that was on the stage. She made a comment that like, uh, so where are they gonna get the the funding for all these esg net zero by 2050 things that everybody's talking about and her comment was well we found we found 17 trillion to pay for covid we we just got to do something like that
0: <laughs> I, so like yeah i don't think we're like led by serious people and and they don't seem to think about these things but again like so, one of the things I've been studying is the Plaza Accord of 85. And everyone always says, like, oh, can that happen? And it gets brought up every so often. I, I read this tweet from this currency guy, and he was like, yeah, the pl- this was like three years ago, this tweet was written. But it said, like, yeah, everyone always brings up the Plaza Accord and inflation, and both never happen. So, and then I'm just thinking, like, well, if inflation's here, what are the possibilities? We have another Plaza Accord. For those who don't know, it's, it's where G5 nations got together and coordinated to devalue the dollar. And there's different theories about why the US wanted to do that. But all I'm saying is that there's a possibility that there is some like coordinated effort. And there was one answer from Jay Powell at the presser where, you unless you know about the Bank for National Settlements in Switzerland, he basically said, he said, well, every month we go and we talk to other central banks behind closed doors and we talk to them and, see, and coordinate and uh, cooperate with each other and try to uh, align their policies, and so that was like one I've never heard him talk about that in a, in a presser, and so that's that's the one thing I will say. Obviously, things look dire. We might be in the end game. I don't know. Can they kind of keep this going with some kind of coordinated effort? Maybe that's kind of what I would say to that.
1: Well, and and so let's say let's let's run the scenario that next month we just start to see disgusting numbers in the economy. We're going through. It's very clear. We're then going through a recession, and you're seeing just all the the economic energy being sucked out of the system. You see, instead of these inflation prints, let's just say that you start to see deflationary prints kind of manifest themselves in short order. They have to step in. They have to step in in some type of meaningful way because for something like that to happen, something is very substantial has to break down. It's not like you're going to get that type of quick response without it being just something just massive seismic shift in the functioning order of the global economy. So they're going to have to step in. They're going to have to do something because you're going to just have unbound impairment in credit markets for that shift or or for that recession to, to set in in such an abrupt way. So they have to come with just another firehose COVID yeah. level response and, and, bigger, and, right? and probably bigger. And like, I just don't know how you hold it together. And I don't know how, how you would expect the bond market to, because think about it, prior to COVID, they couldn't, they couldn't find inflation if they tried. It was, like, it was like this mythical creature. Now, all of a sudden, everybody saw what happens when you expand broad money, the M2. And so, if they step in with the fire hose and all this printing, like that bond market's going to be looking at and saying, Oh my God, if the last go around was expanded by this amount and it gave us these numbers in the inflation gauge, like whatever this next round is, it's going to be that and maybe more. And I think you just see credit yields explode. And then, I mean,
0: even today, like, I,
1: the, it's crazy.
0: That's, I mean, the the volatility the uh, last couple of days and yields it's crazy, been crazy. So that's why, like right now, you know, it seems like possible. Like this whole yen thing, and couple that with what's going on in Europe. Like it's those two things. It just seems like they could combine together and cause that that response yeah. um, that we're talking about. And when that happens. Because I, I still don't think they connect the dots uh, between what happened uh, in terms of their fiscal and monetary policies. I don't know if they've actually... Cl- they still blame it. They have it. to. They have to. Yes. The, I mean, it's a, inflation was complex with the pandemic and there was definitely supply side issues that are causing it. But I think they just they still think that most of it is like that. Uh, it, that. That was the cause of it. It wasn't It wasn't yeah. the fiscal It wasn't the stimulus. I think there's still people that I think that we can just print money and not have these problems, you know, the MMT crowd and stuff like that.
1: So, uh, I don't, Regardless of what they think, I know the credit markets are sniffing it out and it's, <laughs> they're totally seeing it. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is, uh, again,
0: Europe right now, you got the ECB who was kind of forced to start to raise rates because every other central bank was raising rates and the euro was tanking as a result, as, as well as there's fear of recession, which is another reason why there's downward pressure on the euro but all the other central banks were raising so then the, the Christine Lagarde comes out and says yeah we're going to raise rates Italian bond spreads spike just for the mention of it right yeah. which which leads them to announce a unlimited buying the bond buying tool just like Mario Draghi I, I honestly i just don't know what the ecb is doing like they are screwed because of the fundamental design flaws of the euro the fact that all these other governments could spend money and they have no control over them. And they're still trying to find inflation. And you can't really blame these governments for spending money because of this energy crisis. But they're doing it, right? Yeah. And I'm trying to keep track of all of these governments. Like you, the UK, you know, 180 billion, 6% of GDP. Germany is printing 95 billion euros. Sweden and Finland have like bailed out, uh, given liquidity facilities to utility companies worth 33 billion euros. Switzerland has, has bailed out energy companies. Austria's five hundred Euros a year to twenty twenty four for all that's that's two or three or four billion euros. Greece just announced something, Netherlands just announced something. I mean, they're all printing and, and they're trying to bring in inflation. So I just picture Christine Lagarde's like <laughs> they're
1: trying to bring in inflation. I love that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was, what is was she supposed to do? And so you um, you know, have you seen like Vegas vacation? Like Chevy Chase. Have you yeah, seen that of movie course. Again? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a scene where he's going through Hoover Dam and he's like, he's walking and then he like pokes out a, a pebble off the wall of the rock and then a spring starts yeah, and yeah, he yeah. this bubble gum in it. And that's what I picture. It's like Lagarde sticking her bubble gum in it and then another leak springs and then she's got her finger on it and that's like the inflation. And then she's like rolling over German bonds to buy Italian bonds, trying to keep that yeah. in check. And then she's like, over her shoulder. She's just like, I got an unlimited tool too. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) It is. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. I mean, like, so when I look at that and I just, and I see that, I just don't see, I I see these central banks are all going to go the same route eventually. Like they haven't had these like really dire energy crisis that had justified these printing right now. I just see it. It all leads to the same place. Which and is and if people think that it can be,
1: it. if people think it can be contained regionally, I think they're kidding themselves. They don't understand how interconnected the world is. Like, it's not like it's just going to happen in Europe and it's not going to spread to other parts of, of the planet. Like, the world is so interconnected at this point through commerce and trade. Like, you're not able to just contain it in one spot and think that it's that's crazy talk. This is the, this is the last question I got for you because you're a very astute observer of your environment. What is the one, uh, what, is the, what is one of the most important things happening right now that you think a lot of people are missing or not paying attention to? I just immediately go to Bitcoin. For- <laughs> <laughs> beyond, beyond the I mean, obvious, like I, beyond the obvious kind of like- for people in the community. Yeah.
0: No, but like specifically with Bitcoin, you know, I've held through you know, 2018, 80% drawdown. I've seen this before. And there's a lot of similarities between these bear markets. And I think what people are missing is that the amount of building going on is incredible yeah. during the bear markets. And it sets the stage for the next bull runs. And I mean, you just have news after news after news every week. And I write about it. And it's like, wow, like if this happened in the middle of the bear market, in the bull market, price would have jumped like 10K on this news, like whether it's you know, Fidelity you know, offering 34 million brokerage accounts access to Bitcoin or uh, the NASDAQ just came out and said they're offering a custodial solution or even like things like Ledger having their devices in 900 best buy stores across the country. Yeah. And like all of these things, they just happen. And then at the same time, the fundamentals like hash rate just hit an all-time high, uptime still 99.9%. You know, the security of the network's never been higher. Long-term holders as at an all-time high. So the, the conviction, the base of convicted hodlers is growing and never been higher and is holding more Bitcoin than ever before. And that sets the stage for the next bull market. So you know people get just so hung up on the price, but where I'm looking, it's just like the exact same thing of 2018 and 2019, where I was like, mm-hmm. hold on, all of these things seem so bullish from a, from a health of the network and growth of the ecosystem and the only thing that's lying is the price right now and then you look at the the rest of the world that like we're talking about all this stuff that's the chaos right here the chaos is the traditional financial system bitcoin is beating like a steady heart just block after block and that's like the change in mindset there is all this volatility is a result of the credit based system that we've had and, and and bitcoin's just there doing what it does and it's going to be there you know right now everyone's you know, every normal person—they're all talking about inflation now. Like Bitcoin's been talking about inflation way too long, but now everyone's talking about it. And um, they're in their house and they smell smoke, and they're sniffing. And it's, they're at the point they're sniffing and being like, "Do you smell something?" Like, but when the fire, when, when things on fire, they're gonna look out the window for an escape, and Bitcoin's gonna be there, like on the ground, like a trampoline. And it's going to function perfectly, and it's just going to be there for them, and that's all it has to do is just exist mm-hmm. um, as this unsustainable other system kind of eats itself or collapses under itself. And so that's that's what I'll say. People are missing right now. It's just you know get get off the price chart and start uh, kind of looking at the fundamentals, and you know not to like pump Bitcoin or anything, but that's literally what I think people are
1: missing right now. That's why we call the show Bitcoin Fundamentals. Sam, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and making time and just always bringing so much knowledge with you. Give people a handoff where they can find you. I know you're active on Twitter, but also if there's any uh, articles that you've recently written that you want to highlight, we'll have them in the show notes. Just uh, give people a handoff.
0: Yeah, so I I write for our Swan Private. Uh, Swan Private's just, I work for Swan. I don't, (laughs) I'm an analyst at Swan. It's a Bitcoin financial services company. And I work for our Swan Private where I do a lot of the research and Swan Private's just, high net worth individuals, they come to Bitcoin and they're just like, I need somebody to hold my hand. And so we get like a dedicated rep. They have different needs than a retail client. So we help them with all kinds of things like trust, business, whatever they need. And then they receive research. So you can uh, DM me if you want that research report. Um, I write it every month uh, with Tomer and there's always like contributions from Lynn Alden and a lot of great contributors every single month. So you can get me there. Uh, The blog on swan.com. So Swan Signal, I just had a new piece up there. It's called uh, Bitcoin and the US Growth Problem. Why Bitcoin and Economic Growth are the only reasonable ways out of this debt problem. So you can check that out. It just published today. Uh, And then I'm on Twitter. So Sam Calla, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. You can uh, get inside of my mind if you want to. (laughs) Give me a follow. Um, But yeah, that's where I spend a lot of my time uh, talking to all these other great Bitcoiners and and thinkers who are, who are thinking about these uh, hard problems that we face, and maybe we can find some solutions.
1: We will definitely have links to that. We'll have links to Swan. Sam, thanks so much for uh, making time. This was really fun.
0: Hey, man, thanks for having me on. Big fan of the show. I learned a
1: lot from you, so thanks so much. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show, or you learned something new, or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week.